The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Another edition of West of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but we have a really, really exciting show lined up for everyone tonight. Genevieve, how are you doing over there? I'm doing very well. Thank you very much. I, I've noticed I always address you in the same manner every week. One of these days, believe me, I'll develop some original ideas and I'll think of something a little bit more exciting to how welcome. How are you doing, Frank? I am doing swell. Thank you, you. You do sound very upbeat, which is good. I'm excited about tonight's show. I mean, as you know, this is a topic that I'm quite fascinated with. And uh, a quick shout out to everyone tuning in and everyone listening, uh, the podcasted version of this show. Hello to you, sir and madam, as well. Tonight's show is going to be, like I said, definitely one of the, the topics that has captured my attention for, for a while now. And tonight's guest is uh, Dr. Graham St. John, who's going to help us walk through all this. But as, mm -hmm. a, as a preamble, I guess, to this interview, I just want to bring something to, to the table that people probably have heard me mention before with some of our, our previous guests or, or in some of the shows where we just kind of review the news of the week. This is just my personal opinion. I feel like we're living in a time that seems to mirror the 60s. And why do I say that? The reason being is because back then the Vietnam War was going on and it was a very unpopular war. And currently we unlike are... other wars. <laughs> like other wars. Um, and currently we're involved in quite a, an unpopular war. Uh, back then we had the space race, right? We were competing with Russia to get to space. Yeah. Today there is a, uh, maybe not the same type of space race, but there is a race to colonize space, right? We hear more mm -hmm. talk about the possibility of colonizing Mars, going back to the moon. Um, so there is a parallel there as well. But not just that, you also have the race issue coming up in a very unfortunate manner. Back then, we had Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. Today, we have the Black Lives Matter movement that arose due to uh, what, you know, were abuses of power by the police, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And probably, not to get too dramatic here, but the one that really made me shake my head top, was, top, top. <laughs> was, was what happened yesterday, February 27th. Um, there was a Ku Klux Klan rally in Anaheim that turned violent as a Klansman. They ended up getting into a fight with some counter-protesters mm -hmm. and uh, one Klansman and two protesters ended up uh, stabbed. So it's a very, very similar landscape that we're dealing with, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. And it was in that climate in the 60s that uh, psychedelics captured the attention of the youth. A lot of people pointed to all of these things happening as the reason why young kids were looking to expand Break their out. minds. Yeah, mm -hmm. like, you know, they basically said, you know, there's got to be more to life than all of this. And that's where you had guys like Timothy Leary and William S. Burroughs and the McKenna brothers, uh, Terrace and Dennis, who would go to inspire many, as Tim Leary was famously quoted as saying, tune in, turn on, and drop out, and explore this world of psychedelics. Since then, obviously, a lot of people have tried to unlock the mysteries of these substances, 
But while LSD was taking all the fame, uh, there was a little compound called DMT that seemed to have flown under the radar with very little mentions back then. And it wasn't until Dr. Rick Strassman began the first clinical trials in decades that DMT mm -hmm. came to the forefront of uh, public consciousness. And DMT is really a really interesting substance. Mm -hmm. It's the least complex and naturally occurring psychedelic, and it holds so many mysteries. DMT derives from a, a tryptophan, which is found universally in living systems, from the simplest bacteria to the most complex life forms, unlike other drugs. It's a Schedule One drug under the uh, United Nations 1971 Convention of Psychotropic Substances, and it is in the same group as GHB, LSD, peyote, mescaline, psilocybin, heroin, MDMA, and marijuana. And it is this substance which uh, Dr. Uh, St. John describes in his book uh, as uh, having a very characteristic smell, which he describes as burning plastic uh, butthole, I'll use that term, <laughs> when smoked, that uh, seems to open this world to people. And it's mm -hmm. really fascinating. As you already said, and you know, the, the big thing, and a few years ago, they published um, several studies basically telling the world that they found out DMT is an endogenous substance. And um, just to clarify, because that word is used, you know, quite often in DMT talk and will be used during the interview, endogenous, directly speaking, means, you know, growing or developing from within. So it means that the body does naturally produce it. And like Frank said, you know, um, pretty much most um, or all living creatures do, at least to a certain extent. So... Yeah, as you said, um, it's crazy to think that something that is endogenous, that is within our mm -hmm. bodies, should be ruled as illegal. Because by that definition, every single walking human being, um, you know, animals yeah. all around you are illegal substances, or at least contain illegal substances. No, well, I'll do you one better. They're illegal manufacturers. Now, here's here's where things uh, take, take an interesting turn. I'm just going to paraphrase a bit of the history, because obviously we're going to go into it. But... DMT was synthesized in the 1930s. It was recognized as a natural compound in 1946. The psychedelic properties of DMT were not recognized, however, until 1956, a full 10 years later, following the experiments of a Hungarian psychiatrist by the name of Stephen Zara, which uh, Dr. St. John calls the uh, Neil Armstrong mm -hmm. of DMT. And we're going to find out why in just a few minutes. Here's where my ears kind of pricked up a bit, as you can imagine. Reading his book, the term MK Ultra popped up. Mm -hmm. And obviously, we have been talking about this quite a bit. And there is an instance in the, in the book uh, where they talk about Terrence McKenna. And uh, I guess folklore, as it would have it, McKenna tried to score some military-grade DMT, uh, which he acquired through a mole uh, <laughs> that was working at the Stanford Research Institute, which was linked to the MK Ultra program uh, sponsored by the CIA. Although we do have to say they're not 100% sure if that is true and whether, you know, what the origin of Again, the this drug is popular is. belief. Yeah, the, the <laughs> urban folklore. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the mole was McKenna's high school friend, apparently, William Patrick Watson, 
who was working on a summer chemistry project at the Stanford School of Medicine. Watson could have been, and this is, I'm quoting from the book because I found this really interesting, Watson could have been an unwitting participant in a, quote, control release program in which these chemicals were selectively disseminated into civilian populations while minting plausible deniability for their agencies conducting these covert programs. So we have here what could be a quite nefarious undertaking of mm-hmm. purposely, unbeknownst to the people. Well, yeah, I mean, the you're handing out freebies. The, the majority of people are like, hey, you know, cool, you, this guy's getting us some high-grade DMT. And it's actually essentially a double bluff. You know, he's a double agent. Mm-hmm. And at least the suspicion is that, you know, there was a controlled release of this compound to the public and it was being monitored, as you said, unbeknownst to the users. So just to clarify a few more words that will be used a lot. So an enthogen that's used commonly throughout the interview, it's any substance, you know, plant or drug taken to bring on spiritual experience. So that's entheogen. DMT, if anyone wants to know, technically um, broken down, it's N-N-dimethyltryptamine or dimethyltryptamine in American. And it is, as I said, an endogenous hallucinogenic drug, often compared to LSD, though it does have shorter effects. And um, lastly, but not leastly, hyperspace. Obviously, in the title of the book that we will be discussing, hyperspace, at least, you know, um, as a dictionary definition comes, it's a Euclidean space of dimension greater than three, i.e. it's a space beyond, you know, the three dimensions as we know it or beyond space time as we know it. It's often seen in science fiction um, where, you know, they describe it as a theoretical dimension within which conventional space time relationship does not apply. So, you know, people may refer to the, their dream space as hyperspace. Anyway, so with those keywords um, briefly explained, I think it's time to officially intro. Yeah. And guest. we interviewed Dr. St. John during the week as he's been traveling a lot lately. And uh, he was actually in Germany at the time. Mm-hmm. And he was gracious enough to take time out of his schedule to sit down with us and answer our questions on his book, DMT and Culture. So, Genevieve, if you would, please introduce our guest. So, Dr. Graham St. John is an Australian cultural anthropologist with research interest in electronic dance music movements, event cultures, the anthropology of religion, alternative religious movements, and entheogens. St. John's Mystery School in Hyperspace, a cultural history of DMT, was just published at the end of 2015. An in-depth account of DMT's social, cultural, and religious impact in modern history, it makes for essential reading for anyone exploring this compound's background and how it has affected humanity in recent years. He's been awarded postdoctoral fellowships in Australia, the United States, Canada, and Switzerland, and is a frequent speaker at conferences and transformational festivals. Currently, the senior researcher on the Swiss National Science Foundation project Burning Progeny, the European Efflorescence of Burning Man, as well as founding executive editor of Dance Cult, Journal of Electronic Dance Music Culture, St. John's passion for dance cultures and spiritual exploration runs deep, having also authored Global Tribe, Technology, Spirituality and Psytrance, as well as Technomad, Global Raving Countercultures. Alas, this is really the guy to hit up if you have any interest in burner cultures and dance movements, and of course the entheogenic interactions pertaining to either of those. And now, without further ado, 
our interview with Dr. Grant St. John, author of uh, Mystery School in Hyperspace, A Cultural History of DMT. Thank you for being with us, Dr. St. John. We really appreciate it. Boy, your book, Mystery School in Hyperspace, A Cultural History of DMT, is really a fascinating read. I don't think I had researched the, the modern history of DMT. I know a lot of us hear about how it was used in ancient civilizations and some of the, the roles that it had in developing said civilizations, but nothing really that put it all together in the 20th century. Why did DMT take a backseat to LSD during the 60s, which was the, the heyday for psychedelics? That's a good question. I guess um, you really have to look at the fact that DMT, by comparison to LSD, is uh, one of the most powerful, short-lasting uh, psychoactives on the planet. And I think that there's power that it has uh, to affect astonishing uh, realities, authentic realities for people that have a range of effects. Um, is one of those reasons. I think that uh, by comparison with LSD, certainly the usage of DMT in the early 60s required uh, the syringes, so the uh, it, its capacity to be uh, consumed via um, uh, smoking methods wasn't known then. So I think that those factors are part of the answer to that. And it's also interesting to point out, as you do in your book, that DMT is one of the, the least complex and naturally occurring psychedelic, but we know very little about it. It also seems to be present in many living organisms, and as I just mentioned earlier, it's something that had been used by ancient civilizations for centuries, maybe even thousands of years. Why is something that is so common and found in nature illegal like it is today? Well, that's a, that's a very good question, and maybe there will be. Well, I'm hope I'm hoping that there will be more more books uh, and, and research undertaken on this. I mean, it is surprising, I guess, and it was one of the uh, sort of uh, I was sort of a detective story in a sense to understand why there had been so little research published on certainly the modern cultural history of DMT, especially given what we know of its uh, endogenous, uh, that is sort of native nature to humans, that we uh, that, that DMT occurs naturally in us and in our brains. Why it's taken so long for a cultural de a history of DMT to be produced when we have a virtual uh, library of materials on other tryptamines and other psychoactives like LSD. And I guess um, the, the 500 pages of this book is an effort to uh, comprehend that and explain that. But I must say that... Uh, this book is a cultural history of DMT. It's not the cultural history of DMT. And if it inspires others to write uh, further accounts of DMT and, and fill in many of the gaps in this history, then it will have served its purpose for sure. What is it um, in your case then that first inspired you to take this road of um, exploration and research? Well, the book is certainly uh, an expression of my own interests and uh, experiences with uh, DMT and ayahuasca and uh, for readers who uh, encounter the, the prologue to my book, you'll be exposed to my own personal sort of entry point into uh, this 
subject matter, which is something of a of a of a near death experience, which is not uncommon yeah. in relation to DMT. But I was also interested in, in from a from a literary point of view, mm-hmm. um, how DMT has impacted culture and art throughout yeah. the twentieth century, and and I think that's that, I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this research is to document how tryptamines and especially DMT have have uh, had this impact across music and, and literature and, the, and other art forms. Yeah, no, I, I do get the feeling that LSD often takes, you know, the front seat and even though DMT caused a lot or led to a lot of artistic creative outputs, LSD is the one that, you know, gets highlighted in that and people often don't realize that DMT may have been the cause instead of LSD. <laughs> Well, yes, yeah, certainly the the research with DMT goes back, uh, modern research DMT goes back um, to the 50s uh, when um, Stephen Zara, the Hungarian uh, psychopharmacologist, mm-hmm. uh, self experimented and and um, and basically discovered in the in the mid 50s the psychopharmacological properties of DMT, which interestingly enough, um, around the same time, William Burroughs was um, researching ayahuasca in his uh, trip to the Amazon in in uh, the early fifties. In fact, and uh, as I documented in one of the chapters in the book, he, as a result of uh, some very positive experiences with ayahuasca, that weren't um, that weren't really published until the nineties in his mm-hmm. letters with various people that he then went on to experiment with with DMT in the in the 60s so yeah it it, it certainly was around in in, in those times mm-hmm. Speaking of Burroughs, uh, I was uh, surprised to read that his initial experience with DMT was quite negative. Uh, I believe he uses the word nightmarish. When in recent times, when I hear talk about DMT, it's in a very positive way. However, one of the aspects of the experience seems to be that one must do away with their ego of sorts. Do you think maybe that was what was happening with uh, William S. Burroughs when he experimented with DMT? Yeah, well, I think the issue of Burroughs is a fascinating one because, of course, he was a pioneer and he was, as a Westerner, uh, he was one of the first to to go up the river, so to speak. And mm-hmm. so he had very little to go on. He He, he had no, as we have today, uh, he didn't have websites. He didn't have forums like the DMT Nexus. He didn't have uh, user guides and safe use practices uh, of information that's readily available right. at your fingertips to um, guide him through these processes. And he, in fact, um, kept um, barbiturates and, and so on on hand as a kind of uh, you know sort of chemical sidearms to. Um, to take in the, in the event of having uh, uh, an adverse experience. And, of course, um, going in with that kind of fear is simply going to amplify the, the problem as um, many explorers and experimenters have discovered since. And so, yeah, we, we're now privileged by the fact that we have so much information available to enable uh, safe and uh, certain outcomes 
in, mm-hmm. in a sense. And it's funny because, as you mentioned, his experience with ayahuasca was uh, very positive. With DMT, not so much. However, when you talk about DMT, ayahuasca and DMT seem to go hand in hand. Does this mean that there is a, a difference between ayahuasca and DMT, even though the main component, that being DMT, is found in ayahuasca? Well, I think many people would argue that rightly that ayahuasca is uh, a, a symbiotic uh, relationship of uh, two main uh, chemical components, and that is the the, uh, the tryptamine and the, the harmaline, uh, or the harmalis that are, are available in the Banisteria's capi vine, which is the main uh, uh, one of the main ingredients. So it's it's mm-hmm. DMT and and uh, the harmalis. And so that enables uh, the DMT to be drunk uh, and effectively have its uh, passage um, uh, assisted into the bloodstream and into the brain. So uh, we're talking about very different different processes here. And, of course, if I was to write a, a cultural history of ayahuasca, that would be a wholly different type of book. Uh, uh, nevertheless, right. there are many comparisons and, and you know, f- fuzzy boundaries that are to be acknowledged. But of course, there's a whole emerging library and literature on ayahuasca these days. One of the things that has uh, always baffled me uh, quite a bit is how ancient civilizations could come up with this ayahuasca mixture. Can you just tell us uh, briefly, when was DMT discovered? And I know that, as you mentioned earlier, Stephen Sara plays a key role, in, and you dubbed them the uh, Neil Armstrong of uh, DMT. Yeah, well, that's exactly right. Um, yeah, uh, in terms of the psychopharmacological properties, uh, it was Stephen Zara, the Hungarian in the, in the mid-50s, who uh, made this discovery. And uh, since then, uh, you know, that, that discovery sort of rippled out, and, and, and there have been a whole range of uh, subsequent discoveries. But they, I guess what interests me is the way that um, DMT has been this kind of holy grail for yeah. a great many um, explorers, and uh, those explorers are uh, their exploits are recounted in the book. Um, you know, for instance, the, the the endeavors of Timothy Leary and Nick Sand, and right. and uh, onwards to the McKenna brothers, especially, uh, well, both Terence and, and Dennis McKenna. And, um, and Rick Strassman and, and a whole range of other, uh, more recent contemporary, uh, explorers who've added to our, our knowledge of this, of this phenomenon that we still know very little about. As you mentioned, one of the uh, key figures in the history of DMT is Terence McKenna. And uh, I was fascinated the first time I heard about the uh, stoned ape theory. Uh, what are? Can you tell us a little bit about what that is and what are your personal thoughts on his theory? Well, uh, I don't think I can go into great detail on uh, his theory uh, other than the, the basic outline that he theorized that psilocybin or hallucinogenic mushrooms are responsible for the development of uh, human consciousness and religion 
and I, and I guess that there, you know, there's there's a whole range of books on on mushrooms, and there's a, a vast library, in fact, and that's a whole other subject matter to um, the subject of uh, DMT, which, uh, as I say, I've produced a book, but it's not. Uh, it's not as it's not a comprehensive uh, Bible on the subject. I'm uh, I'm hopeful that um, there will be a, a great many other contributions to this subject. Do you personally think it's possible, or maybe even likely, that human evolution can result from the intake of hallucinogens? Well, I I think that it's possible. It's very possible. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think that I'm in a position to. You make uh, declarative statements uh, either way. I, th- I think what's interesting to me more is the way that something like DMT can uh, inspire and uh, transform individuals. Yeah. And I think that's more. That's something that we can deal with in a in a in a more um, you know sort of empirical and and, mm-hmm. and understand in a more practical way. Because yeah. I think that these substances are there. They inaugurate substantial transformations and yeah. changes in people's lives and the way they um, live their lives. And I think that, therefore, this has um, tremendous implications for questions of religion and, and spirituality. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that I was uh, uh, surprised to, to read in your book was uh, the mention of the CIA's MK Ultra program. This, for a long time, a lot of people thought it was more or less, you know, just a conspiracy theory of sorts. However, over the the years, we have come to find out that this program was indeed carried out. And uh, uh, the reason why I was was surprised is because, again, I've equated DMT as as a very positive experience. Why would the government, the CIA, take interest in this compound and use it in such a nefarious way, basically mind control? Yeah, well, I guess you're looking in the dark ages of the Cold War where there was a great deal of fear on the part of the the U.S. on how the Soviets and the, the Chinese were developing their own mind discombobulates, if you like. And so the arms war, uh, this is the chemical arms war, then that was built on this fear that um, that they were uh, more advanced and I think that that's, that's part of that. But yeah, the, the, I guess given that, um, many of the documents associated with MK Ultra were destroyed in the early seventies, we don't know the full extent of, uh, of what they were up to, but, um, there's a lot of, uh, fascinating details. Some of, some of which I document in the book is that, that has come to light. And on the other hand, there's, there's also, uh, it, you know, the, the fact that, um, we don't know so much about what went on has fed the uh, inspired minds of you know, filmmakers and scriptwriters who've dived on, on this subject with, with great delight. One of the uh, characters that actually kind of kick-started my interest uh, a few years ago into this whole issue of uh, psychedelics and shamanism was when I uh, picked up a book by Carlos Castaneda. Uh, you mentioned him briefly in your book. What were your thoughts on his work? I know that there's a lot of controversy. He seemed to have plagiarized quite a lot of what he wrote about in his experiences. But he went on to become this spiritual guru that came out from the 60s 
1960s. What can you tell me about Carlos Castaneda? And was he unique, not necessarily in a good way, but how was he separate from, say, William S. Burroughs and Tim Leary and the McKenna brothers, who were all contemporaries? I guess for me, one of the interesting things about Castaneda, without going into detail about the various claims to his uh, authenticity, is that um, he was... Uh, you know, quite instrumental, as you know, in uh, popularizing uh, shamanism in the in the sixties and, uh, and and subsequent to that. And so, I think that this uh, popular modern interest in shamanism or self shamanism that is ways in which individuals can you know access alternative states of consciousness and alternate realities through a variety of spiritual technologies was uh, in many ways um, grew out of that period. And I think that uh, what's more interesting is for me in this story is that uh, Terence McKenna in the mid to late 60s when he was uh, studying at Berkeley and the in a um, you know, sort of self-directed uh, shamanic studies uh, course at the height of the 60s in, in the, in, in the in, you know, at the center of the, the counterculture in, in Berkeley was, um, was first exposed to DMT. And, and so this um, a sort of psychedelic shamanism came out of, uh, of, of that period and, and specifically one man. One of the things, speaking of shamanism, is that uh, one of the things of importance with DMT, and a lot has been said about this, is the importance of set and setting, but also of uh, having uh, somebody guide you through this uh, experience, um, as that would be the role of the shaman. Is that how you see DMT? Is this something that one should seek guidance when using or is this something that you think was meant to be experienced in that personal, intimate level? Well, I, I think both, really. Uh, everyone should be as properly as advised as possible uh, in terms of experimentation, and that's why I you know, highly recommend web forums and websites like uh, DMT Nexus. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a vast wealth of information there and, and safe use guides and so on. Um, yeah, and I, but I should say that the, my book is not a user guide and um, it's more of a cultural history, but um, it really is important for uh, users and prospective users to be, be well advised. Also, we see that in the 60s, a lot of uh, key people, as we just discussed, uh, experimented with psychedelics and DMT, even though it wasn't as popular as LSD or they didn't talk about it as much as LSD. DMT has had a, a big influence on a lot of mediums and a lot of art. What do you think of this renewed interest in DMT that's going on right now that seems to mimic that time of the 60s? Oh, that, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I'm, is is it really mimicking the sixties, or uh, I mean, have, have we moved on? I'm not sure that that, that we are mimicking mm. the sixties. Uh, there, there's obviously a lot of significant changes. Uh, the internet uh, is, of course, one of the most um, profound uh, developments, and I think that we can see that the upsurge in uh, contemporary. Uh, Usage of, of DMT and other other tryptamines it, it coincides with uh, the advent of the internet, and of course, it was around that time that in the 
you know, mid nineties that, um, McKenna was, uh, touring the globe and over a couple of decades actually. And, um, making lots of pronouncements about uh, hyperspace, which, of course, incidentally, is the the same phrase we use for uh, interchangeably with cyberspace and making all sorts of pronouncements about the uh, machine elves of hyperspace that he first encountered back in his room in on a rainy night in 1965 on Telegraph Avenue in Berkeley. But, uh, yeah, I'll, I'll have to think about that one some more. <laughs> Um, for for those listening and who may um, you know be hearing about this topic for the first time, could you give us a concise definition of what hyperspace means? A concise definition? Well, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to provide you with a concise definition. A, a definition, maybe. <laughs> uh, well, the, the, it, I guess this is a phrase that's the most common uh, terminology for um, the alternate space into mm-hmm. which uh, DMT travelers and, and uh, travel is a very uh, significant aspect to the experience involving a passage to and, and sort of through uh, an alternate space mm-hmm. that is ultimately sort of embraced as a, as, as a breakthrough experience. I guess uh, a lot of people will make reference to uh, the interdimensional or the probable interdimensionality of that experience that is higher than the uh, four dimensions, you know, time space. Yeah. And uh, so it, it's fascinating for me that like returned travelers, you know, psychonauts familiar with this experience report a sort of passage into a space that may be shockingly alien or uncannily familiar and yet possesses ontological authenticity, which um, is is basically something that is fed on throughout um, the user's life and and without, in many cases, returning. Okay. And I mean, not <laughs> returning to this yeah. time space, but without <laughs> returning to, uh, to so-called hyperspace. Yeah. Can you tell us a little bit about when people – experience DMT, they come back, if you will, with these stories of being in the presence of these, uh, it could be, you know, strange entities or they're in these, as you mentioned, uh, these seemingly parallel worlds that seem realer than real. And I know that it might be really hard for some people to grasp that. It almost looks like it's it's reality and ultra high death. Is this a real place in your opinion? Is this just an experience that happens in our brain confined by our own ideas and imagination? Or is this something that as, as I'm afraid the answer might be we're yet to figure out? Well, I think the question could be, uh, is this an authentic experience? Mm-hmm. And, uh, the, the question of entities is, is a fascinating one. Uh, and I address this in the book. I think that a whole other book or series of books could focus exclusively on the entity phenomenon. And we go back to, um, you know, the most significant research that's been you know, scientific research has been conducted on on a, the DMT phenomenological experience of DMT. The entity experience was mm-hmm. that of, um, of Rick Strassman in, in the 90s when 
Uh, he had full approvals to conduct uh, experiments with volunteers who were injected with uh, DMT, and, mm-hmm. and 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 more than half of of those, I think, something like um, sixty volunteers. More than half of those uh, experienced entities of a of a wide a wide uh, uh, assortment and range mm-hmm. of entities with different. Um, attitudes and, and motivations and, and characteristics. But uh, one of the, the persistent characteristics was that uh, these, these entities were perceived as, uh, as, as authentic, as uh, astonishingly real. Uh, there was sort of familiarity associated mm-hmm. with any of these uh, entities or beings. So then the question is, as has been asked, you know, what, what are these entities? Are they do they do they come from you know outer space? Are they uh, extraterrestrial? Are they mm-hmm. interdimensional? Are they uh, ancestral? Are they archetypes? Are they memories of uh, birth experience? Are they uh, memories of past lives? Are they messages from our DNA? There's a whole range of questions that contemporary researchers have been asking about this mm-hmm. phenomenon, and um, I think that to grapple with this, we we can go back to what, what McKenna was essentially um, saying, and that is that um, the the explanation for the you know the, the real phenomenological grounding for this phenomenon is in the meaning that uh, these experiences have for individuals. I think that that's really where we we need to be looking because uh, it's the way in which these experiences are interpreted and passed and uh, integrated into the lives of the experience. You know, post-event is is what matters. Dr. Uh, Strassman's research definitely did a lot to move the idea of DMT forward and bringing it up to a whole new generation of people that had never heard about it. One of the things that I quickly found was that it creates a conflict between DMT and the role of psychedelics like DMT and religion. And even reading your book uh, where you talk about Dr. Strassman and how he had to uh, leave the uh, Buddhist community because of it, is there any uh, level ground in which religion and a spiritual, at least what I, in my opinion, is a, a spiritual experience with DMT. Is there a ground in which they can both live happily? Or have you found that the religious groups and people that believe in, in a faith um, have a negative idea of DMT and like psychedelics? That's, that's uh, it's a very complex question. Uh, for me, the, I think... The notion that uh, that these experiences have a transformational potential is fascinating, and I think each each experience is uh, needs to be taken on its own merits. And um, the concept of entheogen is is fascinating, and I deal with this um, to some extent in the book, and it's been written about widely and it's uh, very popular now to regard uh, DMT and other uh, tryptamines uh, as antigens, and that is that they are substances that awaken the divine within. So that there are substance that, substances that spark in mm-hmm. a divinity, okay. and uh, this, is, this, is, uh, this is a fascinating concept 
for me, and I think that it's and and we so we've also seen this this idea of uh, entheogenic uh, religion, and I think that that um, that there are a lot of uh, fascinating uh, potential for this development. But will but will there be a church of DMT? Will there be uh, a, a kind of um, a sort of dogmatic uh, religious formation around use of DMT? I, I don't think so. Um, do you think Terence McKenna might have been a bit misguided in his dislike for the term entheogen? Well, he, he, he seemed to be very uh, stuck with uh, psychedelic, which is a, is, is a concept uh, that has its own merits and has a long history. Um, I think that the idea that, uh, you know, the association with uh, a divinity or a, a monotheistic uh, divinity uh probably draws people away from mm-hmm. a concept like uh, antiochin, but I think that it can be it, it can be examined in, in its broader sense. And we're not just talking about, you know, psychoactive substances here. We're yeah. talking about a range of practices, okay. uh, yoga, um, music, dance, trance, that, that um, effectively enables uh, similar types of processes. Do you share the, well, one of the common views and also something um, Strassman touches on, do you share the view that maybe some, you know, certain practices such as meditation can tap into, you know, the, this realm in the brain, into the pineal gland and cause a, a surge or at least, a, you know, an increase in DMT release? Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating question. I, I've uh, there are many practitioners out there who will make such claims, um, and uh, I document that to some degree in the book, especially where the ideas of uh, Rick Strassman have been embraced mm-hmm. by a wide range of uh, people who, I guess, have um, sought some sort of scientific backing for their their views. And that chapter on uh, Strasman, I think, is one of the more interesting ones because yeah. it deals with the career of this meme that's left the clinic, and that is the meme of the the so-called DMT gland that 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 our pineal gland, the human pineal gland, is the site of uh, DMT production in the brain. And um, and even though the science is appears to be getting closer to uh, confirming that, it's still uh, you know, the jury's still out. But what's fascinating to me is that, uh, the speculations in the book have been, in, in his book, uh, DMT, the, the spirit molecule has been, uh, which is, of course, a, a bestseller and been around for about 15 years, mm-hmm. um, has inspired, um, a, a great deal of, uh, of practitioners and artists and filmmakers. And what do you make of the views, you know, held by um, quite a few people, especially Buddhists and similar religions, their view that maybe you should just not be taking anything that you have to take into the body that isn't produced by the body already? Um, do you feel that there's a possibility that perhaps we are tapping to something that we aren't supposed to and that we are meant to reach via natural means such as meditation? Yes, yeah, so I guess there are a great many uh, practitioners who will uh, suggest that. I, I guess what's fascinating to me is that um, the idea that uh, the brain's own psychedelic, which is uh, Stradsman's phrase, mm-hmm. uh, has been adopted by, you know, uh, many practitioners. And, um, but it's all, it's all part of this wider 
story of uh, DMT that wears many hats. I mean, mm-hmm. this is one of the reasons why this phenomenon had not um, that you know there there's more moving parts than a Swiss watch in this subject matter, and I think that's. The complexity of it is one of the reasons why there not been a book like this produced to this point. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we're talking about this spectrum of, of attitudes from uh, the prohibitory DMT is dangerous and it has no medical value and no therapeutic value to uh, to the other extreme that it's the brain's own psychedelic. And, um, and we're in the process of, of dealing with that. Um, we're still in the early phases of that. Of course, that theory has not been confirmed. Uh, it's not been confirmed that the pineal gland, the human pineal gland produces, uh, DMT in psychedelic quantities. But, the, but the implications of that are, uh, if that were the case, uh, are, are fascinating, and uh, there are there are scientists like uh, Andrew Gallimore who uh, theorizes that um, our ancestors were actually on DMT all the time, naturally producing mm-hmm. DMT, and that uh, he calls it uh, an ancestral neuromodulator, and that um, and the reason why when we're consuming or smoking. DMT uh, today. The reason why we're having these profound effects is because uh, we're we're uh, essentially sort of remembering what it was like in in the past. That's a very um, that's almost a very shallow interpretation of his theory. Which uh, mm-hmm. there's uh, treatment of that in the book, but of course this is we're talking about ongoing debates that um, can't be. It's impossible to capture. In, in, a, in a book. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, I'd like your view on this. I guess there's a couple of points I've got to make. Um, do you think it's possible that maybe um, humans have had decreased levels of DMT over the past generations and that perhaps something along those lines is leading to things such as increased rates of depression in society in general? And secondly, the practice of microdosing psychedelics is becoming quite popular, especially amongst um, people that can obtain psilocybin. Do you think um, microdosing of DMT might catch on, at least in research and experimental fields? Well, okay, it's a two-part question. All right, yeah. so um, yeah, there's, there's a great deal of speculation that, uh, and this actually goes back to. Alina Blavatsky and the, mm-hmm. so the co-founders of the Theosophical Society that uh, the pineal gland uh, has been calcified uh, yeah. over time and that uh, this had lead, led to the sort of devolution of, of consciousness and but that uh, practices that decalcify uh, the pineal gland are, are associated with the, an evolution of consciousness. And I think a lot of people in, uh, you know, broadly new age movement have, uh, embraced that, that idea and it's given expression in many different ways. And as a sort of cultural historian, I'm more interested in documenting that than, um, you know, making statements about whether I actually believe that's the case. Um, and you mentioned something about uh, the you know, second question about microdosing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that um, we're seeing a form of microdosing 
so far as TNT is concerned, with um, the advent of, of smoking blends like mm-hmm. uh, Changa. Mm-hmm. And I think Changa, which is uh, a blend that, that came out of Australia, actually, is, uh, as some people refer to it as DMT light, is a form of, uh, is a form of microdosing that can be optimized in, uh, for personal use. And I think that, okay. which is also documented in the book, is, uh, is a fascinating development because it enables individuals to optimize and uh, augment uh, usage for sometimes more uh, public uh, consumption, festivals, and and uh, and other such environments. Okay. We were just talking about the uh, pineal gland a, a minute ago and calcifying the pineal gland. And I know that there's a lot of people out there who uh, have heard or they've read that our water supply here in the U.S. has been contaminated with fluoride and that's causing their pineal glands to become calcified. Is that something that you have found to be true? Is there any, is that something that people should worry about? Well, like I say, uh, as a as a sort of cultural historian of the subject, um, I'm uh, I'm fascinated with how people are interpreting this. Um, although I must say, it's not that particular issue. It's not something that I've addressed widely in the book. It's not something I, I, I guess uh, a whole other project could be conducted on. Um, on that particular question. Um, uh, so, yeah, I'm sorry, I don't really have much to add to that one. It's quite all right. One of the interesting aspects of this whole experience is the fact that people report having NEDs or uh, near-death experiences and encounters that seem to echo the stories of alien abductees. What can we draw from this? Uh, is it possible that people that have these experiences are just experiencing, pardon the redundancy, but are they experiencing, a, say, a, a surge in production of DMT in those moments that makes them believe that they're being abducted by aliens or experiencing death? Or could it be that DMT is putting us in contact with something greater that is out there? Oh, you, you like to ask the easy questions, don't you? <laughs> I apologize. <laughs> <laughs> But no, it's uh, it, it is a fascinating question, and I think it sort of goes to the heart of much of what interests me with regard to uh, you know what I've been calling tryptamine liminality. Uh, that is the the in between state associated with um, tryptamine intake, or perhaps um, uh, endogenous uh, DMT release uh, in significant parts of the moments of one's life course, such as birth and death. Yeah, the, the, the idea that these experiences enable a glance at our own uh, mortality or, or death is uh, a, a fascinating uh, phenomenon. I think that this is one of the reasons why this subject is, has really been touched in this, in this way, and I, and I think that there's much more to be said about it. But, of course, we're not talking about actual physical death. We're talking about something that's more in the sense of a, a kind of phenomenological symbolic death that is nevertheless uh, a significant passage experience uh, or a rite of passage experience 
such as uh, you know experiencing the the mourning and loss of a loved one or the mourning and loss of your former mm-hmm. self through this transition uh that involves and en- encounters with with the other and and what that other is of course is open to speculation mm-hmm. i think that we can talk about the other being essentially our other self or you know our other selves and you know, when we're talking about um uh probable interdimensional um activity this is this is a subject of sort of wild, wild speculation but i think it's something that will be investigated um in much more detail in the future do you think um whether from experience or speculatively is it possible to take too much dmt in the way that you know many other drugs can be simply overdone even if they do have beneficial effects at lower doses oh sure i mean there's there's a a, a great deal of uh, potential for um people to um overuse in terms of uh, returning to the experience without getting any anything of sort of redeeming sort of value from the experience but mm-hmm. i think that most uh practitioners uh and even you know people who've used uh used this substance only once and who've had life transforming experiences and who've never sought to go back again and that's a very common uh situation mm-hmm. uh will confer that uh, or concur that that uh there's tremendous uh value in in these exceptional experiences because they are ultimately exceptional uh experiences mm-hmm. if one approaches it with as much information as possible and and that's why we we've seen this sort of flourishing of of uh you know sort of networked uh global community who um who provide a great deal of very important information on on places like uh the DMT nexus Mm-hmm. Um, I guess along the same lines, but more a physical question. Do you think it physically you can overdose on it? Is that possible? I, I don't think it really is. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, there is, you know, Burroughs made reference to in the early phases of, uh, in a very famous letter to, to Timothy Leary, actually in the early sixties, where he warned Leary about DMT. Uh, and said that he'd overdosed on, uh, uh, I'm not sure how much he, he had actually, I can remember, but, uh, it, it was, it was a sufficient amount. And yet we know that Burroughs was approaching this from the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. He was approaching that with, uh, um, with very little knowledge and he, he was essentially, uh, approaching it through fear. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, Leary, uh, didn't actually take Burroughs' advice because Leary went on to experiment himself and write a very fascinating uh, report that was published in the, the early, one of the early editions of the, the Psychedelic Review in the 60s, just before he was sort of kicked out of Harvard uh, when he was experimenting with the, uh, the so-called experiential typewriter, which was this crazy device that was developed to um, to allow... Uh, psychonauts to report back uh, during their episodes 
Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. Failed uh, technology, uh, kooky device in the history of science. But mm -hmm. um, as Leary's efforts demonstrate the, the context and the, the set, and what he called the set and setting, uh, one's attitude and preparation uh, and, and, and motivation in going into these experiences that are, are, are really essential. Yeah. And, and, and you know, it, it's more than often the case that um, we can look to how those uh, sets of um, – uh, determinants uh, have impacted the situation. Mm -hmm. In your book, you mentioned how DMT has been referenced in pop culture from, uh, you know, a children's cartoon like Adventure Time to movies, obviously music and art. What do you think of DMT uh, becoming mainstream? What does that tell you about the society that, that we live in now? Well, I'm glad you're asking these questions about art because it's essentially that's what this book is about. And, um, and I really want to, want to say that, um, I've had a lot of support in, in writing this book. It, it features, uh, the artworks of, uh, uh, some 30 or more, um, uh, visionary artists by the main part. Um, there's, uh, the, the cover work, the cover art is by, uh, an Australian, wonderful Australian artist by the name of Bo Dealey. Uh, there's, uh, work by Alex Gray, a Android Jones, uh, Adam Scott Miller, uh, Willem Weird, uh, and, uh, a great many others who are, uh, going to forget at this, this point and, and make a meal of that. But, uh, uh, th those artists are, uh, uh, Martina Hoffman, uh, Luke Brown, and, and so on are very important. And so we have uh, uh, 30 color uh, illustrations. Mm -hmm. uh, and I should say that the book also has a forward by uh, Dennis McKenna, who yeah. uh, I had the privilege of asking him, and he, he accepts the right forward, which was fabulous. And, of course, North Atlantic Books have, have done a, a, a brilliant job in uh, producing uh, what is a, a very – uh, technically uh, difficult subject in terms of right. uh, references and so on. So uh, I get to hand it to them for, for, for their professional job in, in that, and I've probably forgotten your question. <laughs> no, I was just saying, what, what do you think of, uh, you know, DMT uh, going mainstream, if you will, you know, being referenced so much in pop culture? What does that tell you about our society today? Well, I think it tells a lot about the popular desire for uh, mystical experiences and um, alternate states of consciousness, uh, the, the, the popularity of uh, Rick Strassman's uh, DMT, the spirit molecule, and then subsequently the, the film documentary um, inspired by that mm -hmm. with the same title by Mitch Schultz, which I think it has – Perhaps over the last time I looked, it was over eight hundred thousand uh, supporters on on his Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, illustrates that there is this popular uh, desire and, and intrigue and curiosity that um, has been certainly amplified and, and you know assisted by the by the speculations with regard to uh, the endogenous uh, nature of and character of DMT. 
Um, I was going to ask, uh, what do you make of um, this kind of dichotomy between, um, you know, on one side you have people like um, Terence McKenna who believes that it shouldn't so much be, you know, the, the experience of DMT shouldn't be so much something that you do for yourself and in itself, but it should be something that you do for the greater good of humanity. You know, you're essentially an explorer going out, gaining information and bringing, bringing it back to the rest of the world. Um, and on the other hand, people, you know, um, such as Sand, who believe that it has to be foremost of all a completely personal, um, self enlightening experience. Do you have any view on that? Um, you know, where, where do you see yourself standing and what do you make of it? Yeah, well, I think those, those two positions are fascinating within the broad range of, uh, pursuits of these uh, figures and, uh, you know, that have been primarily, uh, you know, male, which is another interesting, um, mm. Uh, aspect of this whole development, this, this, that the Holy Grail has been essentially pursued in, in at least in a, in a public way by, uh, men and that the, uh, breakthrough experiences has been, as I documented in another chapter on breakthrough experience has been largely a, a sort of, uh, masculine hero's journey. Mm-hmm. But yeah, there, there are varying takes on that. And you're right. McKenna's, uh, key idea was that the experience is, is not for one's own psychotherapeutic benefits. Mm-hmm. It's uh, for the, it's to the ends of, um, you know, evolving consciousness. And I think that that's not that far from what um, Nick, Nick Sand uh, has been, has pronounced. And mm-hmm. uh, although his, his interpretations seem to take on a more of a, uh, you know, personal, um, you know, psychotherapeutic even, um, mm. response. Although at the same time, he was hanging around with Leary somewhat in the, in the, uh, in New York in the, in the, at the time of the, uh, when Leary and his gang were at, in Millbrook, he, uh, certainly pulled away from the, the kind of psychological, uh, approaches of Leary mm-hmm. at, at that time. Yeah. Stephen uh, Sarah, you quote him in your book as saying that uh, DMT and other drugs serve as keys to unlock the mysteries of the brain-mind relationship. Looking ahead, do you see science maybe not embracing, perhaps more accepting DMT in the same way that uh, popular culture has? Do you see that happening anytime soon? Well, it, it is it is happening, and but it's happening very very slowly. And of course, one of the, you know, the main problem, of course, is the prohibited stature of the substance in question, which has, uh, effectively, uh, uh, stymied a great deal of potential research over, over the decades since prohibition and the, the advent of the war on drugs and has persuaded or dissuaded, uh, many scientists from pursuing the research. But I think we're seeing, you know, as I mentioned, the work of 
Andrew Gallimore, there, there are uh, a great many other scientists mm-hmm. who are investigating uh, DMT from a, a range of different perspectives, many of which I don't document in the book, largely because I'm not a scientist and you know, I'm not a neurobiologist and I'm, I'm, I'm not an ethnopharmacologist. It's, it's been quite a, uh, a juggling act because we're talking about a, a substance that can be um, – Observed from a great deal of uh, disciplinary perspectives, and um, it, it, I guess that again is one of the reasons why the subject matter has uh, has taken so much time to um, to uh, you know attract this sort of uh, you know historical attention. But I think that um, you know Rick Strasman's research in the nineties was was instrumental. And um, we have him to thank in, in many ways for you know where we are now in, in terms of uh, our, uh, our wider understanding of this phenomenon. Mystery School in Hyperspace, A Cultural History of DMT is the title of the book. Dr. St. John, uh, where can people find your book? And could you give us a, a website where people can go learn more about you? Well, I think the best place to find that would be to go to uh, my personal website, which is edgecentral.net, and uh, that's E-D-G-E central.net. And from the f- front page, people can click on the Mystery School in Hyperspace link, and then that takes you to uh, various options. Okay. Mystery School in Hyperspace, a cultural history of DMT. Dr. St. John, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure talking to you and uh, exploring uh, this topic further. Thank you so much. Well, thanks, guys. Uh, It was an honor honor to be on the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thanks. And that was our interview with uh, Dr. Graham St. John, author of that great book. Mm -hmm. I highly recommend if you get a chance to pick up a copy, definitely do so. It's really, really fascinating, uh, to say the least. Right now, we're going to throw it to a song real quick. We're going to be right back in just a few minutes because we also asked Dr. St. John about his top five, right? We do the top five with our guests. In his case, we asked him for the top five books and or movies that he feels contribute to the understanding of mm-hmm. dimethyltryptamine, a.k.a. DMT. The, the uh, recommended reading and or watching list. And or <laughs> watching list. So you don't want to go away. We're going to come back and wrap up a few things. Let me throw it to... Oh, I know that the band Tool got a shout out or two in, in the book. So we're going to play a little bit of Tool. This is a really cool track. I remember the first time I heard this track, I was like, wow. These guys just are nonstop amazing. Um, this Stink Fist from the album Enema. Here's a little bit of Tool. West of the Rockies coming right back in just a few minutes. Enjoy. Uh, 
second hour of West of the Rocky Sam Frank. Uh, you heard a little bit of Rodriguez there, Sugar Man, a really cool song. Definitely fitting of that time, I must say. Mm -hmm. Definitely fitting. As always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, West of the Rockies on Facebook. You can follow the show on Twitter at WOTR Radio and check out the website, of course, WOTRRadio.com. A lot of cool stuff on there, interviews, stories, all that good stuff. You can sign up to our podcast and our YouTube channel. All the links are on there for your enjoyment and ease of browsing. As always, I'm joined by Genevieve. You can find her on Twitter at Genevieve Uway on Twitter. Mm -hmm. And as you just finished hearing, that was our interview with Dr. Graham St. John mm -hmm. as we discuss his book, uh, Mystery School in Hyperspace, A Cultural History of DMT. And as you can see, it's a very, very extensive topic. I mean, we focus mainly on the cultural aspect of it. Mm -hmm. Now... And you know, anyone who is interested in the scientific aspect of it as well. We did have an interview last year with Dr. Strasman, so you can catch up with that online, go on our website, um, talking about DMT, um, mainly yeah. his book and research, um, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. But yeah, so look up Dr. Rick Strasman. Yeah, on WTR. Radio. Radio <laughs> <laughs> but uh, as always, we ask our guests to give us their top five, right? Every guest that we bring in has an area of expertise. And Dr. St. John did not escape our top five. And we asked him, you know, what were his top five books and or movies that he felt that would bring people uh, to a greater understanding of DMT? Well, actually, you can make this a top six. So I'm going to start with number six. And number six, it's a movie called Enter the Void. Mm -hmm. And uh, this movie is from 2009. Number five is The Banshee Chapter, another film, this time from uh, 2013. Uh, number four goes to DMT, The Spirit Molecule, the documentary directed by Mitch Schultz. And I believe that was from 2010. Mm -hmm. Yes, 2010. Uh, number three is a book by the same title, DMT, The Spirit Molecule. That was by Dr. Rick Strassman, of course. Number two is True Hallucinations by Terrence McKenna. And number one dun, 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 is Mystery School in Hyperspace, A Cultural History of DMT. And he sends this with, uh, and I quote, what else would you expect at number one? So, <laughs> I honestly, I didn't expect anything else. So. Well, I think that it is the first book to You know, the, the first the, summary, the first review, yeah. the first encyclopedic piece of work that's been put out yeah. there for people. Yeah, no, I definitely encourage people to check it out. And I mean, it also includes a lot of uh, accounts of people's experiences. I mean, he talks a lot about Timothy Leary, William S. Burroughs, the McKenna brothers. Plenty uh, of accounts from Arrowhead as well. <laughs> and one of the things that caught my attention, I want to just talk about this for a few minutes as we, as we wrap up, was that... Uh, uh, the Grateful Dead's Robert Hunter is quoted in Dr. St. John's book as saying that DMT is not for everyone and nobody has made any money selling DMT. And I think that that is something that you need to really think about because DMT seems to really take the experience on a very spiritual journey and a very personal journey. And what do I mean by personal is that a characteristic of DMT is that you'll take it once, experience something, you'll take it again, and it's almost like you pick up where you left off. Mm -hmm. You know, it, it's almost like a process. It's not something that, you know, you're not going to find a, a DMT dealer on every corner going like, hey, kid, you want to smoke some DMT, right? Mm -hmm. 
Now, another interesting characteristic of the whole DMT experience is the whole near-death experience and the uh, alien abduction type experience. Terrence McKenna said that he saw UFOs and he wanted to make contact with UFOs. And this is something very interesting because, you know, it makes me wonder what is going on when we are dealing with alien UFO phenomena. If this compound has this ability and we produce it in our bodies, could it be that mm -hmm. people are literally just having like a, a flood of the DMT being produced and boom, they have these experiences, you know? Is that what's going on? Or, which this is, you know, strictly my opinion, if there are aliens, have they figured out a way or do they know how to trigger our, our pineal gland, thus making themselves able to manifest. Um, I want to go through this list. Um, it's it's in the book Mystery School in Hyperspace, and this list was generated by a Peter Mayer, and it essentially delineates the options, you know, as regards the entities and these hallucinations. So th these are the possibilities, essentially, or the, the theories that have been propagated. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm just going to go down this list. It's only eight, and they're the obvious potential, you know, possibilities. <laughs> Number one, there are no alien entities at all. It's merely subjective hallucination. Number two, DMT provides access to a parallel or higher dimension inhabited by independently existing intelligent entities. Number three, DMT allows awareness of processes at a cellular or even atomic level. It might even be an awareness of quantum mechanical processes at the atomic or subatomic level. Number four, as a neurotransmitter, DMT causes the older reptilian parts of the brain to dominate consciousness, resulting in a state of awareness that appears totally alien. Five, psychedelic tryptamines are the biochemical means by which we contact the creators or creator. Number six, DMT provides access to the world of the dead and entities are the souls or personalities of the departed. Number seven, DMT entities are beings who have mastered the art of time travel and can communicate with humans but without materializing. Number eight, which is the final one. This is what reminded me to bring it up because, Frank, you just mentioned something along those lines. The entities are probes from an extraterrestrial or an extra-dimensional species sent out to make contact with organisms such as ourselves who are able to manipulate their nervous systems in a way that allows communication mm -hmm. to take place. So I think um, another term you may prefer to use is an extra-dimensional entity, which yeah. I think is a pretty nice word. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, it's interesting times, exciting times. Boy, that being said, <laughs> take care, be safe, God bless, don't do anything too crazy. We want to see you back next week. Let's see, we're going to go out with a song that I think most psychonauts would probably relate to. If they haven't heard of this one, they might want to check it out. This is a little tune by a porcupine tree called Arriving Somewhere But Not Here. <laughs> this has been West of the Rockies. Take care, guys. We'll see you next week. Don't forget to check out the website, WTRRadio.com. Till then. Bye-bye. Good night. West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM, Los Angeles.